morning, we are starting a new sermon series. It's a sermon series based on questions and asking, hopefully, some of the more difficult questions that we tend to wrestle with, or maybe questions that people outside of the connected church and our world and our culture might have as well. We live in a time where people are asking more questions, not less. And so that's really what we're going to take an opportunity to jump into here today and over the next number of weeks. I'm grateful to Katie for putting that video bumper together. I'm also grateful uh, to a lot of you who are part of that. And just the questions that you are asking that you just gave in that video bumper are really a lot of the ones that we're going to wrestle with in the days and in the weeks to come. And as we get ready to do that, one of the things I just immediately want to put on our radar, uh, you might wonder why are we exploring questions, and one of the first things I would just say to us is that questions are powerful. They influence us in all kinds of ways, probably in ways we don't even recognize or realize, and we may not realize the important role that questions have between us and our relationship with God. In fact, very, very early on in the story between God and humanity, God is asking humanity questions. You might remember that when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they disobey God and do what they are not intended to do, God comes walking in the cool of the garden in the evening, and normally Adam and Eve would come running to God, except they didn't when they disobeyed God, and so God asks a question. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And then the conversation continues, and and God asks another question. He says, did you guys eat from the tree that I asked you not to eat from? And so questions, even from the very beginning of our story with God, have been there. And then if you continue on to Jesus, Jesus asked tons of questions. In fact, if you were to count them all up, he asked over 300 questions throughout the Gospels. That is a lot of questions, and we see them being asked all over the place. In fact, early on in his life, in his relationship, in his walk with his parents, Jesus, we are being told, asked them a question. You might remember there was a time when he was about 12 years old that Jesus and his parents had gone to the temple area. They were there for a while. His parents went to leave, only Jesus wasn't with them. They didn't notice for a while because they were part of a large caravan. By the time they found out Jesus wasn't there, they had to backtrack. It took a lot of extra time. They were pretty upset. They finally find Jesus. They say, where were you? And Jesus responds by asking them a question. And he's like, hey, earthly mom and dad, didn't you know I'd have to be in the house of my heavenly father as he was in the temple area? So at the beginning of his life, he asked the question. Then throughout his ministry, he's always asking questions, questions like, do you want to be healed? Uh, do you love me? Uh, things like, who of you by worrying can add one single hour to their life? And then even at the very end of his life, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And one of the things that Jesus does is he asks a question. He literally calls out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Questions abound. Questions are powerful. But one of the other things about questions is that they also challenge us because we only ask a question when we realize we don't know everything. And we human beings like to know everything. We like to be in control. We like to wrap things up airtight. We want to know it all. So even though a question can be powerful, it can also be challenging because we're acknowledging I may not have all the answers, and that can be hard for us. At every pivotal place in our life, questions play a part. So if you are a student and you're trying to figure out where should I go to college, you ask all kinds of questions. How much does this college cost? What is its reputation? Do they have a strong reputation in the area that I want to study in? Uh, what are the dormitories like? How, long, how far is it from where I live? All of these kinds of questions. Does it have a strong music program? Does it have a strong sports program? Maybe the most important question of all, what's the food in the cafeteria area like? I mean, you know, that, those kinds of things. Those questions help us come to answers. 
If we are looking to buy a new home of any kind or an apartment of any kind, what do we do? We, we go and explore it and we start to ask questions. We also ask, can I afford it? But also, where is it located? Do I like the community that it's in? How far is it from my work? How long a commute am I going to have? Does it have one bathroom? Does it have six bathrooms? Whatever it might be, but we ask all of those questions to help us come to answers. And perhaps maybe the most influential decision we will ever make in our life, who will be our life partner? It's surrounded by questions. You have to get to a place where you understand, do they love me and do I love them? Those are questions. But it culminates in maybe the most difficult question of all to ask, although also the most exciting, when you get to that place and you ask that potential life partner, will you marry me? Life's definitive moments are wrapped up and associated with questions. So we're going to be taking time in this series to explore a number of questions, hoping and praying that they will be definitive for us as well in our walk with God and help us to come to a deeper place with God. Unlike the Pharisees, our goal in this sermon series is not necessarily to wrap everything up so tight that we can't breathe or explore. We live in a time and in an age people want to be able to explore and experience faith. They want to explore and ask questions of God, and in that they can be drawn closer to God. The Pharisees tend to wrap things up so tight that they literally alienated people in the process. I would put this idea out there for us to think about. Imagine that there's a bird that you want to study. You can pick the bird. I'm not a big bird person, so I don't know a ton of birds that are out there, but pick one that you would want to study. How is it that you can go about learning about that bird? I would suggest one of two options. Either option one is you can say, I'm going to observe the bird in its natural habitat. I'm going to observe what it does, and I'm going to start to ask questions like, when does it eat? What does it eat? How often does it eat? How often does it sleep? How often does it get up? How far does it travel from its home base? And all, you know, all of these questions, just question after question and recording the findings. And as you do that, you can learn a lot about the bird and in its habitat and in its culture. But truth be told, you can't know everything about the bird. For example, you don't know inside of it how it's wired, how it's connected, how the ligaments connect to the bones and muscles and all of those things. The only way you can find that out is if you go to option number two, which is instead of just observing the bird, you dissect every single part of the bird that you can imagine, its living conditions and, and, and all of the things about it, until you get to a place where you're like, I even want to know how its muscles are connected and how the ligaments are connected. And so what do you do? You cut open the bird so that you can literally look inside of it, and that's how you would find out how it's actually connected on the inside. But what's the problem at that point when you have to cut open the bird to dissect it and check out what's inside of it? What is the bird at that point? dead. That's exactly right. So we have one of two options when it comes to exploring truth. We can ask questions and observe and learn, or if we're not careful, like the Pharisees, we can dissect it to such a degree that we kill it in the process. It is my hope in this experience together that we are going to be exploring and asking questions so that we can then experience elements of faith and thereby drawn, be drawn deeper into it and into truth. I want to ask you to indulge me for just a moment here this morning. You're, at first, you're going to be like, why are we watching this? I want to show you a shoe commercial that is currently out. I just want you to observe it and kind of see what your mindset is and what strikes you about it. First of all, how much actual information and detail is given about those shoes? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, you just kind of see this, 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 uh, the images and everything that they do around it. But clearly, they want me to buy the shoes or they wouldn't put that advertisement out there. So what is it that they're doing? 
Well, as we watch that commercial, at least for me, it starts to raise some questions. Questions like, what's so special about this shoe that it's built for speed that I could run faster in those shoes than in other shoes? What's so unique about it? What's so special about it? Of course, I want to know how much does it cost. Uh, I want to know how durable and all of those other things it is, they are. But then also, maybe my biggest question when I watch that commercial, will I too have green streaks that follow me when I run with those shoes? I mean, but what, what is it doing? It's helping me to start to ask questions about this potential experience. And as I engage the experience, they trust that I will then want to buy the shoe. It is my hope and prayer throughout this series that as we ask questions, it's going to be a way for us to engage the truth and engage faith in God in such a way that we will be drawn in. And that unlike the Pharisees, that we will lock it up so airtight that we don't have room to breathe and to flourish and experience the mystery and the awe and the wonder of God. Questions have a way of opening us up in ways that on our own we tend to not do. So part of the hope in this series is that through the questions we will experience that awe and that mystery and that glory of God and thereby discover truth. And all of that is a way of saying that we hope that in this series, we want to ask and embrace questions in a way that we see them as opportunities and not as threats. Because questions are a gift for us to be able to look at and to receive. The scripture that I want to ask us to focus on this morning comes from the book of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your smartphone with you, I want to invite you to take it out if you have your Bibles with you. It's a pretty easy book to find. It's near the very end of the New Testament at the end of the Bible. At the very end of the Bible is Revelation. You back up one book to Jude, and then right before that is 1, 2, and 3 John. And that's where we're going to look a a little bit here this morning, verses 1 to 10. But I want to ask us to pay attention, first of all, to verses 1 to 3, and listen to what it's saying about this whole idea of exploring here this morning. Verses 1 to 3, it says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So let me pause right there. Notice what it says. It says, test the spirits. How do you test spirits? You ask questions. You begin to explore. So even scripture is encouraging us, go ahead and ask your big questions. Go ahead and explore. And as you do that, truth will begin to be revealed to us. If you continue in verses two and three, it says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So again, that's what we're going to be attempting to do throughout this series, to be testing the spirits as it were. And as we get ready to do that, I just want to put one more image, one more metaphor in your mind as we're going through this process, and that is this. When it comes to playing a musical instrument, especially a guitar or playing a piano, think for just a moment how the sounds are actually made. Think about how the music is actually made. Let's take a guitar in particular. The way that the guitar makes music, even beautiful music, is before anything else has to happen, one of the strings has to be pulled or struck. And when that happens, there is a tension that occurs. That tension results in reverberations, which shakes the air around it, which then travels as sound waves to our ear, and we eventually hear it. So the tension, the pulling of the string, or the striking of the string, is ultimately what produces the sound that we eventually hear. Same thing with a piano. When you strike the key on the piano, there's a little hammer hitting strings underneath the keyboard that ultimately are creating through the tension reverberation, the reverberation we eventually hear. My hope in this series is that every time we ask a question, there's actually a little bit of tension raised within us, but that that tension 
will result in something beautiful emerging. When you want to tune an instrument, a guitar or a piano, how do you tune it? You give to each string varying tensions until you finally get to the pitch that is perfect. For us as followers of Christ, the perfect pitch that we are seeking is Christ. And my hope is that every question that we ask is raising a little tension within us that ultimately is bringing us finer and finer and finer into tune with the perfect pitch of Christ. I think each one of these questions that we're doing can help us do that. And that's one of the reasons as we're exploring, as we're embracing, as we're asking questions, I hope you will feel free to invite others into this process with us and that we can all come and explore together. So keeping all of that in mind, I want to remind us one more time, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but again, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the first question that we're going to look at together is really this question, is Christianity the one true religion? And I realize as we even ask that question, it sounds so narrow-minded. It sounds so exclusive in its approach. How can you say that, even suggest that Christianity is the one true religion to the exclusion of all others? Most people are okay saying, you know what, Christianity as one religion among many, that's fine. But to dare to claim it could be the one truth That sounds so exclusive and sounds so narrow-minded. I would suggest that when people are asking that question, there's really a deeper question underneath it that we're digging at. And the real question I think we're looking at is this. What is true? Because if we can find what is true, then by default, other things will not be true. So for me, the deeper question as we explore life in Christ is really, Jesus, are you true? You claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. If that is true, then by default, other things are not true. So my goal in this series is not for us to come along and tear down other religions. My goal is for us to explore what is true, and if we can discover what truth is, by default, other things we will know are not true, or to test the spirits and find out what is false, as our scripture reminds us of here this morning. It kind of reminds me, you probably are familiar, this is really how they do it. Uh, The best way to find counterfeit money is not to study all the ways that money can be counterfeit, but rather to study original, real, authentic money that's not counterfeit, because those who are intimately connected and familiar with the texture, the look, the feel of the real dollar bill will know instantly when something is false and is counterfeit that might come across their path. That's essentially what we're trying to do in this series together as well. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to, we have a couple options of approaching this. What I don't want to do is just walk us through this series and say, hey everybody, this is an apologetics course. Here's a whole list of scholarly academics that proves why Christianity is true. We could do that, but instead I'd rather do this. I, probably like you, have asked many, many times, is Christianity the one true religion or deeper Why would Christianity be true when other things are not? And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to invite you at at your risk into here, all right? I'm going to just walk you through for me, for Matt Lake, why is it that I believe that Christianity is the one truth to be found? And I'm hoping that as I walk you through a little bit of that journey of like just how it works in my head, that it might be a little bit helpful for you in your journey as well. So my first thought is this, and this is a truth I think for all of us, that we all have to choose something to believe. We have to. It's it just, it's who we are. It is impossible to not choose something to believe. None of us exist in a vacuum. If you say, I don't believe in God, or I'm an agnostic, or I believe in science, or I'm an atheist, or I'm a Buddhist, or I'm a Muslim, 
or I'm a Christian, all of those are belief systems. So all of us choose, some, even to say I choose not to believe is a belief statement. It's impossible for us to get outside of that. One of the arguments that's often given against Christianity is to say that you are making yourself superior to other religions. When in fact, the question is we are trying to explore what is ultimately true for us to live into and celebrate. In fact, some people get upset because they say, if you say that Christianity is the one true religion, you are making yourself morally, religiously, spiritually superior to others. In fact, it was that very question that was raised to a gentleman named Leslie Newbegin. He was a missiologist from decades ago, and the argument that was presented to him was this. They said, all right, Leslie, imagine that there's an elephant, and there are some blindfolded individuals who come up to the elephant, and they are being asked to describe what's an elephant like. And the first blindfolded person comes up to the elephant, and they touch the trunk of the elephant. And they realize, by touching the trunk, they say, elephants are long and flexible. True, but that's not all of what an elephant is. Someone else who's blindfolded comes up to the elephant and touches their leg, and they say, what's, in, what's an elephant like? And they say, elephants are short and stumpy. Well, that's partly true, but also partly not true. A third blindfolded individual comes up and they feel the side of the elephant, and so they're feeling out, and they're like, an elephant is like a big, flat wall. Well, again, sort of true, but not entirely true. And people would come up to Leslie Newbegin and say, that's how religion is. Like, there's no one religion that can really see all the truth, that can see all the reality of the entire elephant. And they would use that as an argument to say, therefore, you cannot say your religion is superior to any other religion. Until one day, for Leslie Newbegin, as he was thinking about that argument, he's like, well, wait a minute. Whoever the person is that comes up and says, I have the vantage point to see that they're only touching parts of the elephant and not the whole thing, that person from that vantage point is suddenly saying they have the whole truth. They're saying, my vantage point recognizes that every other vantage point can't possibly cover all of the truth, and therefore mine is right. And what Leslie Newbegin was saying in that was to say, anytime we choose that kind of viewpoint, whatever it is, and try to convince others of it, all of us are putting ourselves in a position where we're saying my position is superior. So the other way that we could say that here this morning is to say that to say that no one has a superior take on spiritual reality is a spiritual take on reality that is considered superior to others. My point is, all of us have to choose something. It's a matter of what. And what is it that is true? So for me, when I'm looking at the Christian faith, one of the elements that for me works of why is it true is this. True truth is original. There's an element of the Christian faith that as I look at it, as I compare it to other religions, I'm like, you know what? It's just so different, it's so unique. I don't think we humans, as good as our imaginations are, I don't think we could come up with all of this stuff on our own. In fact, the reason I think we have it is because it must be true, because it's so different than anything else that we can find when comparing it to other religions. You've probably heard the saying that truth is stranger than fiction. I think that's really true. In fact, I came across kind of a funny little article clear back from 1972 in a newspaper. It says this, mother lifts car to save her son. Mrs. Norbert C., a 5'5", 120-pound brunette, lifted a 2,000-pound automobile off her trapped son following a traffic accident. She later dismissed the fetus, saying it wasn't much at all. I knew my boy was under the car, and I had to get him out. I didn't notice the weight of the car that I was lifting. That made news because it was so different and weird, but true. Like, that wasn't made up. They lifted it up as reality because it was so different. 
I think the same thing applies for us as Christians. There's so many elements of the Christian faith that you just can't find in other places. For example, the concept of grace. In no other religion can you find a God who chooses to die on behalf of those he wants to serve him. In all other religions, it's the humans who die for God, not the other way around. But Christianity introduces this whole concept of grace. The idea of the Trinity, the idea that God is three and God is one at the exact same time. You physicists could probably explain this better than the rest of us, but we have trouble finding human language of how can you be three and one, one and three at the same time? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You go into that very far, we can't even find human language to really describe it. It starts to bend our mind in so many ways. It's unique to the Christian faith. The idea of the Bible. When you go through the Bible, one of the fascinating things is all the heroes of the Bible are heroes not because they're great and mistake-free, but actually the opposite. They all have flaws. They all have mistakes. So it is unique in this religion of the Christian faith that the heroes are the ones who aren't perfect. It's always the underdog who somehow gets lifted up. It's a powerful thing. The whole idea of the incarnation, to say that God, holy, mysterious spirit, is going to choose to become flesh, all other religions reject the flesh as much as they can. They want to get away from the flesh. But in this religion, in Christ, he puts it on intentionally. In fact, look with me this morning here in verse 2. It says this. This is how you can recognize this God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. God joins us. God closes the gap. The idea of salvation, where it doesn't start eventually someday, that as soon as we say yes to Christ in our life, eternal life and salvation begins right here and right now in these very moments. That is unique to this faith. And then, of course, the whole idea of the resurrection. There's historical evidence pointing to the resurrection and its reality. Only this God would dare to come and die for those that were there to ultimately serve him. Listen to what it says in verse 10 here this morning. It says, this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us. He even sent his own son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is absolutely insane that God would choose to do that. Not that we offered the sacrifice, God did it for us. All of this is so unique. I'm just like, in my world, like, I don't know that we can make all this up. Therefore, it's either it's all made up or it's true. It's actually easy for me to believe it's true. I find it fascinating that in our culture, when you stub your toe or you smash your thumb, when we swear, it's in the name of Jesus. Nobody smashes their thumb and is like, oh, Buddha. <laughs> Nobody smashes their toe and they're like, oh, Confucius. I mean, that's not like, that does not get a rating in a movie or anything. So why is that? The name of Jesus is unique. And therefore, because it's so original, points to me the truth of it. Another reason I understand Christ as the way, the truth of the life, is that truth is objective and it's personal. So if I take a step back, and if you're an analytical person, I believe that Christianity answers the big macro questions of life. Every human being wants to know, why do I exist? Christianity answers that and says, you exist because God made you on purpose. You are not here by accident. That is a smaller leap of faith for me than to say we are completely here by accident at the right molecules mushed at just the right time and life formed and moved and the odds of that happening. It's just easier for me to say, I believe God was intentional in this and that I'm made on purpose. I think Christianity answers the question of why there's suffering and brokenness in the world. 
God made creation good, but when humanity stepped into the picture and disobeyed and brought sin into the world, there was this rippling, warping effect on God's good creation that now we have things that God never intended, like pain and suffering and hurt. I think of it as that flat pond that when the pond is flat, you see a perfect reflection of that which is around it. But sin was like dropping a stone right in the middle, and suddenly that reflection has these waves and warpings in it. I think that that makes sense in my mind of like why there's suffering and brokenness in our world. Christianity gives us hope to know we are not alone. We're not by ourselves. There is more to this world than me. It says this in verse 9 of our passage here this morning. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then goes on to talk about that atoning sacrifice. In other words, death is defeated. Evil is defeated because we are not alone because God sent his son. That gives me hope that there's more to the, than the brokenness and the, the pain and the suffering that I see. Eventually, someday, death will be defeated. When we live the way God wants, there's a harmony among people and creation. God says, be generous to each other, and life just works out better for everyone when you do, and it's true. God says, don't murder anyone. We know that when we murder and hurt people, bad things follow. It's true. That, that's, we, that, there's evidence in that. God says, live in your families in this certain way, and when you do, it'll be the best for you and your family and everyone around you, and we see that that's true. When we live God's way, there's a harmony among us and the rest of creation when we do it with God's plan and God's way. It says this in verse 4 of our passage here this morning. It says, you, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them, because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Objectively, I can see that the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. For example, in the last 100 years, the continent of Africa has gone from about 9% Christian to about 50% Christian. Greater is the one who's in us than in the world. In South Korea, in the last 100 years, it's gone from 1% Christian to 45% Christian. Greater is he who is in us than the one who is in the world. And it's projected a similar thing will happen in China over the next 100 years. Those are objective realities that I can look at, that I see Scripture being true. All of that makes sense in my mind objectively, but here's the thing. When it comes to the Christian faith, it's not just an analytical step back. Does it answer these questions from an objective standpoint? It can also be experienced intimately, personally, powerfully. This Jesus we can know deep in our hearts and souls. Last week, we were given the opportunity to welcome Christ into our life and into our soul in a deep and powerful, intimate way. This Jesus can be known up close and personal. And so when you mix the objective with the personal, to me, that points to the truth of Christ. One of the ways that makes sense to me, at least, is to think of it this way. Years ago now, when Jen and I were dating, I only asked for four little things, four objective things in the person that I was going to date and eventually marry. I didn't think this was too much to ask. I've shared this with a couple of you. I just wanted her to be incredibly intelligent, incredibly beautiful, very funny, and a strong believer in Christ. That's it. Just four things. I wasn't asking for that much. But I did have those four objective things out there. Now, I met other young ladies who objectively fulfilled those criteria for me. But it all changed when I met Jen, and those objective realities became deeply personal, and I encountered a love in Jen that I had never experienced before. I would submit the same thing happens with us as followers of Christ. 
from a distance, objectively, it makes sense, big picture. And yet, when it's most real is when we can know Jesus up close and personal. And so what I would say to us today as well, and this is probably the biggest thing of all, like, how do we know, Jesus, you are true? <laughs> do this. If we ask Jesus to reveal himself as truth, I believe he will. This is the Lord of Lords that we're serving and following. When was the last time we stepped back and said, Lord, please reveal yourself to me? And then we humbly were open to whatever that looked like. I love the story of Thomas in the gospel. Some of you know his story that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared again in the flesh or before his disciples with a gathering. All of them, almost all of them are there except for Thomas. And the other disciples are like, Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. It's absolutely amazing. And Thomas, probably like a lot of us, was like, whatever. Until I see him up close and personal, till I can put my finger in the holes in his wrist and on his ankles, I refuse to believe. You're going to have to do way better than that. Just tell me about it. I need to see him up close and personal. Guess what Jesus did? Not too long after, he appeared up close and personal in just the right way that Thomas needed so that Thomas could do the very things that he said he needed in order to believe. When was the last time we said, Lord, reveal yourself to me? Now, to be fair, Jesus may or may not show up the way we want in the way we expect, but I absolutely believe he will show up in a personal way. I've experienced it in my life. I've seen the lives of so many other people. They were on one trajectory. They encounter the living Jesus personally and their life takes a different trajectory. The only way you can explain that to me is the truth you find in Christ. So I ask you, ask Jesus. He can handle our questions. Lord, will you reveal yourself to me? Lord, will you do whatever you need to do to open my heart to see you, encounter you, experience you, that my life might be changed, not just objectively, but personally and intimately and deeply? Because here's the reality when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is not about making moral people better. He's not about making bad people good. Jesus is about making dead people alive. And to me, that's what sets Christ apart from any other religion and any other truth. So that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, yeah, he is. So Jesus comes asking us some questions today. Particularly, I hear him asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you want to be healed? Why are you worrying? Are you thirsty? What will it take for us to embrace Christ as the truth in our life? What will it take for us to experience the truth of Christ in our life? And I pray this day that God will do whatever he needs to through the power of his spirit to help us experience the risen Lord. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. May God have God's way with each of us.